You can understand why British and American companies invested in Germany's struggling economy in the 1930s. They were making millions out of it. But everyone could also see that their investments were building a terrifying Nazi war machine. So why on earth didn't the American and British governments step in? Well, one reason we've been seeing is that both the White House and Westminster governments were divided within themselves. Well, extremely confused in the British case. <laughs> they were also afraid that pulling the plug on Germany's economy might drag their own down with it. But in the British case, there was a much more insidious reason. The British dread of Soviet communism. It looks as though there were those in Britain who were quite content to see Hitler's power grow as some kind of barrier to what they imagined was Joseph Stalin's plan to take Europe over. It's good to see you at the History Café. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank. And I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to. And we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair and let's see where we end up. The British had been afraid of Russia for generations before the First World War. That was to do with the Russian threat to British imperial interests in India and the Far East. After the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, the British added a new dread to this imperial fear, a horror that the new Soviet regime would try to inspire communist revolutions elsewhere in Europe. Well, for the moneyed and landed occupants of Number 10 Downing Street and the Etonian recruits to the Foreign Office, no nightmare could have been more terrifying. It was, of course, a complete fantasy. The Communist Party of Great Britain has never been other than infinitesimally small. Leftist politics are just too difficult to explain for British taste. <laughs> but in the economic chaos that spread through Europe in the months before and after the Wall Street crash, events began to move more quickly. Significant communist organisations now began to appear in France and in Spain. The membership of the Soviet's international organisation, Comintern, doubled in size. Well, as any intelligence organisation worth its romantic reputation should have known, Comintern was not any kind of threat at all. As historian Jonathan Haslam has shown, Comintern was fantastically inept. Its leadership in Moscow mistrusted local parties and insisted on making every decision itself. At one point in the late 1920s, it was actually instructing German communists to work with Hitler and his Nazi party. Moscow insisted that communists in every country work for peace, not least because until the late 1930s, the Soviet Union was hopelessly unprepared for a modern war. So the few British and the rather more numerous French communists found themselves being instructed by Comintern to oppose rearmament in their own countries, despite the growing threat of Hitler's Third Reich. Well, Comintern's campaigns were completely ineffectual because, as you can see, they were bewildering to the point of futility. Well, there was also a more significant reason that Soviet Moscow presented no imminent threat at all to the West, at least for the time being. From 1930, Maxim Maximovich Litvinov was the People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs. 
And as any foreign office worth its complacent Whitehall paychecks should have known, Litvinov firmly believed in working as closely as possible with Britain and France and the countries of Eastern and Baltic Europe to contain the threat of Germany. In 1934, Litvinov was trying to negotiate a general Europe-wide agreement that would include Germany. Well, that was also the policy of at least one faction in the Foreign Office, and it was led by the man in charge of its Central European Department, Orm Sargent. Well, the Germans, of course, turned Litvinov down. But so did Orm Sargent, just because he refused to work with the Soviet communists. If you imagine that the workings of the Kremlin were inexplicable, you should try the British Foreign Office. Back in 1981, the historian Robert Mann tried to make sense of this whole episode. Well, he discovered that the head of the Foreign Office, Robert Van Sittart, did try to push a deal with Litvinov. But not, you understand, because he thought a deal with Litvinov was a good idea. Much too simple. Van Sittart was afraid of something completely different. Well, the Foreign Office has a genius for finding a complicated reason to misunderstand a simple situation. Van Sittart convinced himself that the German army was growing more influential under Hitler. If anything, in fact, the opposite was true. But anyway, the German army, Van Sittart pointed out, had for many years been pro-Russian. Well, that was true. Indeed, cooperation between old militarist Prussia and old Tsarist Russia went right back at least into the 18th century, when, for example, they'd carved Poland up between them. So you would think... Great, let's do a deal with both Germany and Russia and all the other countries of Europe that keeps the peace. It would instantly bolster the German army and help to sideline Hitler. But no. Van Sittart believed that the British should get in first and do a deal with Litvinov so that the German army couldn't. <laughs> and that, he imagined, would keep the peace. Yeah, well, obviously. Hmm. Anyway... Van Sittart got talking to Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador in London. Now, Maisky was being rudely cold-shouldered by polite London society, but he was a friend of Litvinov, and he'd encouraged Litvinov in his pro-British policy. Maisky reported back to Moscow the welcome uptick in British interest, at least from Van Sittart. In November 1934, the message came back from Moscow that the Soviets wanted peace with Britain. Yes, which included stability in India and the Far East and the containment of Germany. There was, in fact, a perfect match between the two nations, the Soviet Union and Britain. And the British response was? Confusion. The British Foreign Secretary Sir John Simon informed Maisky that he was not interested in closer relations with Russia. Not interested. Van Sittart pleaded with the cabinet to back the idea, not least before Litvinov went the way of all Soviet apparatchiks and had a bullet in his head. In February 1935, Orm Sargent, who had been head of the Foreign Office Central Section, which included Germany, wrote a paper arguing that what the Russians were really up to was a cunning plot. They weren't actually interested in collective security. They were interested in encircling Germany. So any deal with Moscow risked provoking Hitler into declaring a war into which Britain would then be dragged. See what you mean about taking a simple situation and finding a complicated reason to misunderstand it. You just have to assume that in the long, polished corridors of the Foreign Office, it was necessary to grasp at any straw at all rather than be seen talking to Moscow. You also have to note that the story about encirclement of Germany was lifted pretty much word for word from the speeches of Adolf Hitler. As we've seen, 
the British regarded Hitler as a, well, a, a reasonable fellow, which nobody living in Moscow could ever be. Well, despite Sergeant's chop logic, in March 1935, the British cabinet reluctantly agreed that the deputy foreign secretary, Anthony Eden, would have to go and at least pay a visit to Moscow. But only, you understand, after his boss, John Simon, had had a chat about it with Hitler. Excessive fear towards Soviet Moscow apparently blinded British foreign policy in the 1930s to the danger of Hitler's Third Reich. Moscow was in fact working hard to achieve some kind of collective peace in Europe, but the British Foreign Office refused to believe it. Of course, the joke is it was just about this time that the Foreign Office began to be infiltrated by the Cambridge spy ring working for the Soviets, starting with Donald McLean, who joined the Foreign Office in, well, in August 1935. After months of invitations from Moscow, the British cabinet very reluctantly agreed that the deputy foreign secretary, Anthony Eden, would have to pay some kind of visit to Moscow. He arrived on the 28th of March 1935 and was astonished to find he was being met by crowds waving Union flags. Well, it wasn't the only surprise Eden was in for. He found then that he got on, well, very well with Joseph Stalin. Stalin was clearly a man talking sense. Stalin told Eden that Hitler's speeches about encirclement and the threat from the Soviet Union were just a smokescreen intended to fool the British. After all, Stalin pointed out, the Germans were actually selling weapons to the Russians, so much for being afraid of a Soviet attack. Britain, Stalin pointed out, could stop Hitler in his tracks by cutting off his supply of raw materials. And he was, as we ourselves have seen, completely correct. Foreign Minister Litvinov then quite correctly pointed out that the Germans were banking on anti-Soviet feeling in the corridors of British power to be able to carry on rearming. Litvinov predicted, again entirely accurately, that Hitler would first move east into Czechoslovakia and Poland and then attack the West. The obvious solution, Stalin pointed out with impeccable logic, was for Britain, Russia and as many other nations as possible to band together in a treaty of collective security. Take the six of us in this room, he said, looking around with a grin at Eden, Litvinov, Maisky and the others. And in fact, there's a photograph of this occasion in the published Maisky diaries and it's on our website. Suppose, continued Stalin, we conclude a mutual assistance pact and suppose Comrade Maisky were to attack one of us. What would happen? With our combined strength, we would give Comrade Maisky a good thrashing. (laughs) With the shadow of Stalin's purges beginning to make Russian apparatchiks distinctly uncomfortable, we can picture the wan smiles around the room, especially from Maisky, who was by all accounts a gentle little man. Stalin liked Eden. He told the New York Times that he was, quote, honest, direct and clear-sighted. And Eden came back to London in April 1935, deeply impressed by Stalin and his team. Eden was convinced that there just had to be a positive British response. The British cabinet, however, would not even discuss it. So there follows a pause for the waves of sickening disbelief to pass. On the 2nd of May 1935, the French and the Russians simply ran out of patience with the British and signed their own deal. 
Theoretically, they committed themselves to attack Germany if Germany attacked either of them. The British Foreign Office, of course, made a big deal out of that, since by an earlier treaty at Locarno and by the terms of the League of Nations, if the French got into a war against Germany, well, the British were supposed to join in. Orm's sergeant at the Foreign Office blustered all over again that it was all a Soviet plot to drag Europe into a general war so that the Soviets could then invade and take over the whole lot. He then claimed, without evidence or logic, that if Germany threatened to attack France, the Soviets would do nothing at all to prevent them. In reality, it was the other way around. Moscow was correctly sceptical that the French would ever lift a finger if Russia were attacked. The treaty was simply meant to deter German aggression. The fine print, it turned out, really obliged nobody to do anything much. But of course, British intelligence was unable to discover that. Of course, the Franco-Soviet treaty gave Hitler the perfect platform to make more wild speeches about encirclement. And of course, the terrified Foreign Office swallowed Hitler's speeches hook, line and sinker as usual, and now gave up altogether on the Russians. As Hitler had calculated, they renewed their efforts to do a deal with the Third Reich instead. Hitler, whined the Foreign Office, was the best defence against the Soviet menace. At the end of May 1935, just three weeks after the Franco-Soviet Treaty, a certain Colonel Rogers of British intelligence visited Paris and told the French that, quotes, the existence... No, the very existence. The existence of the USSR in its present form is incompatible with British interests. The liquidation... The liquidation... ...of this growing danger is entirely in the interests of Britain. Should there emerge the possibility of defeating the Bolsheviks by any combination of forces, then the British will look upon it with sympathy and will, at the decisive moment, themselves take part in it. Well, you really could not have a clearer statement of the thinking going on in the corridors of Whitehall. By a combination of forces, the Colonel apparently meant an alliance of Britain and Nazi Germany which the colonel hoped would sort the Soviets out once and for all. It would liquidate the Russian regime. Historian Jonathan Haslam found a transcript of the colonel's words among Soviet intelligence documents in Moscow. It had been made just within days of his visit to Paris. Russian intelligence was clearly functioning well. The Soviets knew all about British policy. The problem was that all the British intelligence knew about the Soviets was what Hitler told them. The very noticeable failure of the British government to prevent companies financing and supplying Hitler's war machine looks at first sight like a classic case of British official bumbledom, you know, muddling through without any plan. But when you get closer to it, something distinctly darker begins to emerge. There were those in the Foreign Office and the Cabinet who swallowed hook, line and sinker Hitler's rhetoric about the danger of a communist takeover of Europe. The solution, as recommended by Adolf Hitler himself, was to back him in taking the Soviets on. British intelligence secretly informed the French in May 1935 that if indeed Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, the British would send him armed assistance. It puts a very different complexion on this whole story. 
In June 1935, a few days after the British intelligence officer's visit to Paris with all his talk about liquidating the Soviet Union, the British agreed a naval treaty with the Germans. It allowed the Germans to expand their Kriegsmarine. There was also talk of an Air Force deal. And this is in 1935, two years into Hitler's Third Reich. Now, Orm's sergeant at the Foreign Office declared that this, allying with Germany, was Britain's traditional policy. A piece of more unhistorical nonsense is hard to imagine. Before the First World War, Britain had faced almost exactly the same situation as we see in our series, 1914. An increasingly warlike Germany threatened, well, according to the Foreign Office, to invade westwards, while the Russians were a serious threat to British interests in the east. But on this occasion, the Foreign Office, the Tory party and a powerful group in the army persuaded the Liberal government to align itself, not with Germany, but with Russia in order to contain Germany. It was the same policy, allying with Russia, that a hundred years before had defeated Napoleon. Well, in 1935, Germany was a much greater threat than Russia. But Orm Sargent and the Foreign Office argued that it was necessary and traditional to do a deal with the Germans against the Russians. Well, with hindsight, it's only explicable because Russia now had a Soviet government and that terrified the landed acres out of the Etonians at the Foreign Office and the rest of the British politicians. Lord Bobbity Cranbourne, the Etonian Tory parliamentary undersecretary of state for foreign affairs, declared in January 1936, without evidence of any kind, that the Soviet government, quotes, will remain unalterably malignant to the British Empire and will intrigue against us wherever they can. So now even a proposal to extend a financial loan to the Russians was dropped. But what happened next confirmed the worst British fantasies about Soviet influence. Now, for years, communists had remained a tiny, powerless fringe in European politics, largely because Moscow's international organisation, Comintern, had always banned communists from allying with socialists. Why did the British find it so difficult to tell the difference between communists and socialists? Well, of course, it suits the right-wing British media to tell everyone that they are the same thing. And it's so very un-British to think about anything for more than just a moment. (laughs) (laughs) But in 1934, the economic chaos unleashed originally around the time of the Wall Street crash in 1929 had finally caught up with the French. Now, French communists defied Moscow and did a deal with French socialists to form the Front Populaire, the Popular Front. Communists in Spain quickly followed. Well, the result was dramatic. In 1936, left-to-centre coalitions came to power in both countries. Well, actually, Moscow was absolutely horrified, allying with bourgeois socialists. Whatever next. But, of course, British civil servants and politicians indulged themselves in an absolute orgy of hysterical finger-wagging. Orm Sargent, who was now deputy head of the Foreign Office, told everyone that, quote, the extreme left are, of course, in the pockets of the Bolsheviks and are playing the Russian game, no doubt with the help of Russian money. Well, you have to say there's nothing like making it up when you don't know what you're talking about. In reality, the leftist popular front governments in France and Spain faced an impossible task. In France, the new Front Populaire had inherited an economy in ruins. 
and strikes were breaking out everywhere. Yeah, as a Parisian once told me, the French state is never very far from collapse, which is why strikes and protests are worth doing and always have been in France. The British state, of course, is founded on apathy. Nobody cares. Well, whatever the British right-wing press tried to claim, and however much the French strikers wave red flags, Soviet Comintern was as hopelessly out of touch as ever with events in France, and as confused by what was going on there as anyone else. Moscow issued its usual stream of useless instructions. By the end of 1936, however, Orme's sergeant was seriously proposing that the British should actually intervene in France. Well, presumably sending an army or something. Quotes, to free the French from communist domination. By hook or by crook, he argued, Britain just had to prevent France from going Bolshevik. Well, the reality was that far from going Bolshevik, in 1936 and 1937, France looked very much as if it might break up into civil war. And that, of course, was exactly what happened in Spain. In February 1936, the newly formed Frente Popular, the alliance of left-wing parties, won a surprise victory in Spanish elections. Once again, Stalin had had nothing to do with it. He regarded the Spanish Rojos, the Reds, as nothing, quotes, but a bourgeois government of the left and explicitly banned Spanish communists from taking part. That's not something we know about. For months, the Rojo movement was in fact pushed along by chaotic popular peasant revolts against the centuries-old power of land and church. Until August 1936, Moscow had no personnel at all in Spain, not even an ambassador. The very day after the Spanish election, however, the deeply conservative Spanish military attempted to overthrow the newly elected left-wing government. Now, this coup was quickly put down, but five months later... On the 17th of July 1936, a military revolt began in Spanish Morocco. Its leader was, of course, Francisco Franco. By 1935, influential voices in London were quietly voicing the idea that arming Adolf Hitler might be a way to get rid of what they imagined, well, fantasised might be a better word, was an imminent communist threat to European civilization, and more particularly to their landed acres and bank balances. This spectre of communism became all the more threatening when France and Spain elected left-wing governments in 1936. As we said, Moscow had nothing to do with it. In fact, Moscow opposed the so-called Reds in Madrid. The dire fate that various well-heeled British imagined communism posed to society was, however, apparently confirmed when France and Spain descended into civil chaos. Well, of course, the fact that the real cause of the trouble was the financial crash and economic ruin directly caused by the financiers and their right-wing friends, well, that, of course, was too difficult a concept for British politicians and civil servants and their friends in so-called intelligence to grasp. In July 1936, the Spanish general Francisco Franco launched a military coup against the elected government in Madrid. By the end of that month, substantial military aid was arriving from the fascist regimes in Germany and Italy. The German bombers that would subsequently devastate Guernica may well have been carrying fuel derived from American Standard Oil and parts made in Germany by General Motors. 
on the 25th of July, the French Front Populaire voted understandably to send aid to the Spanish government. But two days later, the order was countermanded. Guess why? After strong pressure from London. Well, a week later, in early August 1936, Moscow finally dispatched two journalists and two military advisers to Spain to see what was happening. At last, in September 1936, Moscow decided to send funds, tanks, other military aid. By December, they'd sent $33 million worth, uh, about $720 million worth in today's money. But it was manifestly much more difficult for the Russians to get anything to Spain than it was for the Germans and Italians. And by January 1937, almost impossible to get anything to Spain by land and extremely dangerous, given the German U-boats, to send anything by sea. Just a note here. Henry Morgenthau, the US Treasury Secretary, who we've met before in our previous discussions, tried to get some financial aid to the Spanish government in its fight against the brutal forces of Franco and the backing of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. The case ended up in the American courts because Franco hired lawyers in the States to block it. And who were Franco's lawyers? You guessed. You guessed. Our old friends from our previous discussions, Foster Dulles of Sullivan and Cromwell in New York. Dulles was always ready to defend the interests of the American companies that assisted Adolf Hitler. In the end, the key to the Spanish Civil War turned out to be the French. Question was, would the Front Populaire defy British opposition and back the legitimate left-wing government in Madrid? Well, the French government was, however, beset with its own dire economic situation and growing weaker and weaker. By June 1937, it had collapsed. And under what historian Jonathan Haslam characterises as relentless pressure from the British, the new French government refused to give any aid at all to the Spanish Rojos. Well, the Tory Etonian Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax openly welcomed the carnage of the civil war in Spain. It would, he declared, it's almost impossible to believe now, it would make the British public understand that Nazi Germany would be, quotes, an ally of ours and of all order-loving folk. Knowing what we do about the Spanish Civil War, I can't bear that. So, on the 13th of June 1938, the French decisively closed their border with Spain. As Hazlan makes clear, the Spanish Reds were now doomed. It had been British threats against the French that had conclusively swung the Spanish Civil War towards Franco's fascists. The result of British policy was Franco's victory and decade after decade of grim fascist dictatorship that even today the Spanish find it almost too painful to discuss. Yeah, nobody who's ever spoken to the Spanish about the Civil War will ever forget the experience. Well, the British Tory party and their associates had now pinned their colours openly and decisively on European fascism, uh, Hitler and Franco in particular, because they believed that these dictators were their best defence against what was effectively a non-existent communist threat. Soon after he quit as Tory Prime Minister in 1937 to go to the House of Lords, of course, Stanley Baldwin told a Spanish aristocrat on Franco's side, who was visiting his country house, that, quotes, there had never been a greater enemy of the world than Bolshevism. More intelligently, the diplomat Harold Nicholson noted in his diary on the 6th of June 1938, quotes, People of the governing classes think only of their own fortunes, which means hatred 
of the reds. This creates a perfectly artificial, but at present most effective secret bond between ourselves and Hitler. Our class interests cut across our national interests. Well, that year, 1938, the head of the Foreign Office, Robert van Sittart, who had been arguing for some kind, any kind of deal with Moscow, was replaced as head of the Foreign Office by Alexander Cadogan. The new Tory Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, favoured the Etonian Cadogan because he was, he said, quotes, a sane, slow man. Even sane, slow Alexander Cadogan eventually reached the conclusion that Chamberlain and his Tory associates had got British foreign policy completely wrong. I personally, with all humility, think it otios to discuss whether fascism or communism is the more dangerous to us. It's quite plain that at the moment the former fascism is more dangerous because it's more efficient and makes more and better guns and aeroplanes. Aeroplanes. Cadogan had actually confided long before in September 1936 that, quote, I'm convinced that our so-called policy has been a complete disaster since 1919. Since 1919. Well, of course, it was true. British so-called policy had ended up financing Hitler and helping him equip the Third Reich for World War. And by 1937, it was becoming quite apparent that at least some influential elements on the British right wing, which was by now running what was supposed to be a government of national unity, as well as the Foreign Office and most other departments of the civil service, were intending to back Hitler in some kind of showdown with Soviet Russia. The object, as Colonel Rogers, the intelligence officer, had let slip in Paris in 1935, was the, quote, liquidation of the Soviet Union. It turns out that the latest Tory Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain had only appointed the sane, slow Cadogan because he was easier to ignore than his predecessor Van Sittart. Chamberlain had made it more than plain that he intended to conduct his own foreign policy himself. So now it was to Chamberlain that the British Tory party had entrusted the peace of the world. Well, it was, in a very long historical list, one of their most catastrophic blunders, as we shall see next time at the History Café. There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Café, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafe.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Cafe Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing, follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too. Music.